Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Hello today to our international le- uh, listener, Rob, who is in... Uh, Nairobi. He says, I listen every day to keep up with the UK politics because we all need a cheap laugh now and again. Nothing cheap about this podcast, Bob. Uh, it really helps to pass the time while sitting in endless Nairobi traffic jams. Uh, let me know where you're listening, however glamorous or not it is. Uh, it's fine if you're in the UK. It's nice to be in the UK. Uh, let us Just let us know where you're listening. You can email me, matt.chorley at times.radio. And we might even then get you on to do our hugely popular quiz, Can You Get to Number 10? Every day on my radio show, we do a quiz, 10 questions. It's loosely connected to cabinet jobs. The more questions you get right, the better the job you get to taking your place alongside our listeners and guests. So if you want to have a go at doing the quiz, email me, matt.chorley at times.radio. We'll get you on very soon. Now then, we had all the excitement, if that's the right word, of the Queen's speech earlier this week at the state opening of Parliament in Westminster. Well, on today's podcast, we are heading to Scotland, uh, where MSPs are being sworn in for the new parliamentary session. So we're going to try and get under the skin of the new, but there's loads and loads of new MSPs, uh, the big uh, the big change in the face of the Scottish Parliament, but also what the coming weeks and months uh, will hold. So that is coming up as our big thing on the podcast. But first, of course, we have our columnist panel. It is Thursday, so it must be Night at the Marriott. It's India Night and James Marriott. I'll ask you both shortly text messages that you've say, said that you've later regretted uh, that uh, just to make David Cameron feel slightly better today about looking like a massive wally. Uh, we'll come to that uh, shortly. First, public inquiries. Uh, Boris Johnson announcing a three-pronged strategy for his uh, public inquiry, which isn't even going to start until next year, won't report before the next election. Uh, James, what's the point? Well, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think a lot of people who'd say not, not, not much of a point to public inquiries. I mean, I think with the COVID one, it's, um, it's quite a good way for the government to kind of kick things into the long grass for a bit. And you know everyone's saying there's speculation that we'll have a general election in 2023. Um, and this is a way, I think, for the government to maybe uh, transfer a lot of awkward questions and memories of the worst aspect of its handling of the crisis till after the general election. Although, I don't know, I kind of... I'm going to be fascinated to see how much we all care about coronavirus when this, you know, when this inquiry eventually delivers its report. You know, will we all just go, meh, that thing, coronavirus, vaguely remember, or will it seem, you know, will it seem like something we're all still obsessed about and we're watching, like, you know, prestige BBC dramas about coronavirus, you know, sort of five years on? 
And to some extent, India, I wonder if it's essentially going to just confirm what everyone basically knows. That yes, exactly. That, that things went wrong and then they went better. Uh, and if you hate Boris Johnson, you'll have lots more written in black and white reasons to hate him. And some people who are willing to give him the benefit of the doubt will think, well, it was still a bit of a, you know, he, he had a terrible thing to deal with. Uh, and as we've just showed, that, what was it? Yeah, literally this time last week. Turns out the handling of the pandemic, uh, every single uh, administration, whether it was England, Scotland or Wales, mm. uh, the, 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 the party that was uh, in charge of the handling of the pandemic did very well in those elections last week. That people don't seem to, um, never mind punish them in a, some future general election, don't seem to want to punish them now. Yeah, I think it's one of those um, rare areas where everybody is happy. You know, everybody's able to imagine themselves in a comparable situation and to think, well, I'd have made mistakes too. I mean, the thing about public inquiries is they're presented as these kind of very pure um, uh, proceedings, but actually they're inherently political. It's just the politics is hidden. You know, they're about the unelected asserting authority over the elected. Um, but, but failings are human and they happen all the time all the way down the line with something like a global pandemic pinning I mean I know everybody somebody has to be ultimately responsible but we all know we all know as you said just said we all know where things went wrong and where things went better and the idea of this thing costing millions and millions of pounds and taking millions and millions of years I mean they seem on average for some reason to take about seven years um I I don't know I don't know and I shared James's view that you know by the time it's all over hopefully touch wood I don't know that it's territory we're going to be wildly keen to revisit and uh, there was a, um, a great question from Patrick McGuire in the red box uh political email this morning asking not including Boris Johnson's new COVID inquiry there are currently 11 active public inquiries set up under the terms of the 2005 inquiry inquiries Act. can you name them so go on then James can you name all 11 public inquiries that are currently underway can you name a single one I don't think I can name it I don't think I can name a single one and I spent a lot of a lot of my morning uh revising public inquiries so I could talk to you about them <laughs> uh so I know uh that's probably a mark that uh Maybe they're not that important. <laughs> Any, uh, do you want to have a go at all, India? I'm frowning with concentration and I can't think of one. Well, I mean, there must be, there'll be an obvious one. You'll say an obvious one. We'll spo- go, oh, spoiler yeah. alert, if you haven't yet read your Red Box email, I'm going to give you the uh, answers now. So there's the Edinburgh Tram Inquiry, the Scottish Child Abuse Inquiry, the Independent Inquiry into ch- Child Sexual Abuse, the Undercover Policing Inquiry, the Grenfell Tower Inquiry, the Infected Blood Inquiry, the Manchester Arena Inquiry, the Brookhouse Inquiry, the, the Sheku Bayo inquiry, the Jermaine Baker inquiry, and the Muckamore Abbey Hospital inquiry. So there's plenty of those, and they just you know they're all set up using this this uh, act of Parliament. Uh, you'd always hope that they will bring about some change in the way that um, uh, things happen, but also you just sort of hope that we, but, you know, ideally we'd hope we never face a pandemic again. So learning the lessons of what Boris Johnson did or didn't do uh, last year. Mm we hope won't, won't come across again. And uh, and actually, it, so much of it will come down to the personal uh, behaviours of any future Prime Minister, won't it, James? Yeah. In that yeah. particular situation and that, you know, yeah. Boris Johnson weighing up the cost of lockdown versus the benefit of lockdown and, and, and all of that. It, yeah. it, we might never find ourselves in exact... You know, the argument was we had prepared for a pandemic, it was just the wrong one. Yeah, and I mean, you know, if you listen, I guess if you listen to what Dominic Cummings seems to be saying, as you say, a lot of these kind of... a lot of what will eventually might find went wrong with the pandemic wasn't, you know, to do with 
policy or strategy. It's the, as you say, the you know the fact that Boris Johnson ummed and erred. Seemed to, I mean, especially that Christmas lockdown seemed to find it really hard to take some of the decisions. That classic kind of Boris Johnson characteristic of you know wanting to please everyone and only acting at the last possible minute. I mean, I don't know how. What do you, what recommendations do you make for future people dealing with pandemics? Be more decisive. I don't know. Sort of. I suppose. Yeah, as you say, that's a kind of personal thing, isn't it? And then, yeah, but, you know, do have all of the characteristics which meant that the government threw its weight behind vaccination, but don't have the characteristics. <laughs> you know, it, this is what people really struggle with. The, how can it possibly be the same person who uh, dithered and made the wrong call on lockdown, they say, who made all the right calls on ploughing ahead with uh, the vaccination programme? And, you know, it becomes a very uh, uh, tricky thing. What do you think, um, uh, India, in terms of how Boris Johnson... Will this have any impact ultimately on the way that people view Boris Johnson? No, I don't think so. <clears throat> I don't think so because of the because of what I said um, earlier in our conversation. I think people can imagine themselves in a comparable situation and can imagine themselves not just not knowing what to do, being completely blindsided and panicked and not wanting to cause more damage to human life or the economy than was strictly necessary and just kind of not quite knowing how until eventually one day he did know how. You know, I think that's a, it's quite a relatable thing. Yeah, and people are, yeah, well, all the experiences, certainly of the focus groups we've done, uh, especially is that voters were remarkably willing to, to give the Prime Minister the benefit mm. of the doubt in the way that people who really hate him aren't. Who mm. knew? Who knew? Uh, James, let's <laughs> talk about your column today in The Times if you want to get ahead, ditch your creativity. Why boring people seem to succeed, which is very depressing. Uh, but explain um, your analysis. Yeah, so um, the headline, I think, makes it sound a bit like I'm advising everyone to not be creative, which I'm not. I think it's one of those headlines you're supposed to kind of read it with a slightly ironic tone to your voice. Uh, but the basic idea of the column, I think, uh, is that as our society has become more competitive over exams, over getting jobs, over universities. Um, everyone, I think, is competing harder. Everyone's working a lot harder than they were. And what we've maybe not noticed happening to us over the last, I would say, sort of 40 years, is that a lot of the kind of interesting bits of life we've kind of worn away. And especially if you want to succeed in a job, and we all work, you know, if you're doing a kind of, um, especially doing the kind of middle-class professional jobs, everyone's working much harder, everyone's competing much harder. You end up rubbing away a lot of the interesting bits of your personality. And this is kind of, I was sort of just turning up all these studies about the decline of, you know, the decline of museum going, the decline of even things like stamp collecting. And everyone is just kind of, I think, sort of really kind of reducing their personalities down to the bits that will get them ahead in their careers, help them succeed. And I think we've all become kind of boring. You just have to think back to, you know, as recently the 1970s when people would answer... Um, you know, surveys about what their hobbies were. And people were, you know, in the WI, they went to knitting circles, um, they were playing bowls. And, you know, now these things, so many of these things are kind of fallen away as we spend more time at work, more time on our work emails, maybe also more time on our devices. And a lot of the kind of those little interesting things that make, um, I think make life interesting and worth living has sort of just been chipped away. It's, it's a passion for the... For no point other than enjoying it in and of itself. That's the exactly. And one of the things I kind of wanted to mention, but I didn't have space in the end, was um, this kind of new notion of the side hustle, where you can have a hobby. So you might, you know, make jewellery or pots or something, but you've got to monetize it, and you'll have, you know, you'll have your little uh, site <laughs> on Etsy, and you'll you'll kind of sell it. And 
Suddenly you haven't got another relaxing hobby where you go home and you make a pot. You've got this kind of slightly frightening second career where you're competing <laughs> against other pot makers. And suddenly your entire personality has become, you know, again, you sort of worn away into this kind of completely, you know, purposeful, um, competitive, money-driven thing. Um, uh, Indy, you don't strike me as a dull person. What hobbies have you got? That's very kind of you. Um, I like making pots, actually. But Do you? not. I don't, <laughs> I don't like wrapping them in bubble wrap and running off to the post office to sell them. Have you got um, a wheel? Is it like Ghost? No, no, it's not at all like Ghost, <laughs> if you happen to hear. <laughs> no, and I like drawing and I like um, trying to learn to play the piano and I like all sorts of things, but I'm much older. I think it's true, you know, people of my generation were encouraged is too strong but you know it was it was kind of a given that we'd spend a period of time kind of faffing about doing interesting things whether the things were genuinely interesting or whether they were hanging around in luge bars in Soho meeting interesting people and so I think there is certainly more cultural hinterland in um, older people than perhaps in younger ones Possibly, arguably. I mean, James's column. The extra, I think James's column is fantastic. I really, really, I was, I found it very persuasive. James's column starts with um, uh, a little um, nugget in the uh, Financial Times: How to Spend It supplement last weekend, which I also clocked and thought, I wonder if I can write something around this. Where, um, <laughs> uh, where for a hundred and twenty-seven thousand pounds, you can buy a Steinway piano, a grand piano that plays itself. And then you put it in your magnificent mansion. And what I don't understand about it is why you wouldn't be embarrassed to do that. You know, it's like it would be like having an enormous library full of empty books or, or, or actually having an enormous library and paying somebody to sit in the library reading them because you can't. <laughs> or, or having it a does seem amazingly naff. Just so naff, the idea start. of having a, having a piano. And what do you do? You get all your friends to stand around it and then you what, just press go? <laughs> Yeah, the, the ghost piano plays itself. I mean, why is that desirable? Yeah, but then maybe... I don't understand it at all. But, 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 but then maybe the point that you make, James, is that successful people, people judge to be successful these days, are all quite dull. You know, yeah. Mark, Mark Zuckerberg's quite a dull man. Yeah, I mean, the thing I thought about the piano was kind of, you have this piano that basically advertises the fact that you're slightly less interesting than other people thought. <laughs> you actually can't play the piano. It just shows there's a hobby you don't have. <laughs> And I kind of, I don't know, this sounded kind of tendentious when I first started thinking about it. But then I, you know, looking up all these interviews with tech CEOs talking about their lifestyles and they all just um, love to, I think, almost play up their boringness. So Mark Zuckerberg's got this famous thing about um, he only wears the same grey T-shirt every day because having to having to choose different clothes would be frivolous and would be a waste of his like decision making energy. Um, Jeff Bezos uh, recently, everyone was kind of mocking him for saying that... Um, his favourite book was Kazuo Shiguru's Remains of the Day because it helped him develop his personal regret minimisation framework, which is almost <laughs> like he's trolling arts journalists like me, who are like, no, you have to love it because it tells you about art and people. But, you know, he's just determined that he's going to tell us he likes it for the most boring possible reasons. And I think it kind of shows off that you're just incredibly busy, incredibly focused on your career. You've got way too important to worry about frivolous things. And I kind of think that's maybe an attitude that is maybe kind of pervading more of society than we know. Also, it's very suspect. I'm extremely suspicious of dull people. Yeah. I always think there's something unspeakably awful going on you know, somewhere <laughs> else, tucked away. Whereas people who wear their, their, their awfulness or their dubiousness more, 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 more obviously are 
more trustworthy. Yes, I, I completely because in fact we were talking about this earlier because I've written a, a piece in the Times too today about friends. I was just asked, can you write some? How many friends have you got? Was the first question. Um, uh, in fact, uh, the boss uh, who asked me to write the uh, starting point was, I suspect you haven't got many friends. That was a starting <laughs> point. Nice. Uh, but um, when I started thinking about it, the, the, the only thing I think I am quite good is editing out boring people. I've got friends who've got incredibly boring friends. You just think, why have you per- mm. persevered mm. with this person? Uh, but uh, yeah, just surrounding yourself with fun people who've got interesting things to talk about. And also quite often, I mean, you can have a very long conversation about nothing and you come away... You know, it's not like a transaction of information. It's just, you know, enjoying each other's company. Uh, yeah. Talking of which, well, not only can we uh, have a conversation, we can have a hug uh, for Monday, India. Uh, but yes. um, you're suggesting that not <laughs> we won't be hugged everywhere we go in your, in your column at the weekend. Uh, oh, yes, yes. My column at the weekend was about, uh, was about uh, tour- tourism, domestic tourism, because I think lots of us will be taking holidays in the UK this year, and also uh, about second homers. And I think it's a difficult transaction because lots of beautiful places, I used Cornwall as an example in my column, want your money, but they don't necessarily want you with your loud London voice and your demands for white crab meat and your, you know. So, but the tourist who is spending the money on the holiday cottage uh, wants to be welcomed with open arms and wants wants to wants likes the idea that the people of Cornwall, for instance, would see them as one of their own rather than a dreadful tourist. Um, and I don't think it sort of quite works like that. And I think people should, uh, the column said that people ought to bear in mind as they um, as they spend their summers in this country that. It helps to be polite and have some manners <laughs> and be and be and that the countryside or the coast or wherever isn't a kind of theme park. You know, there's a kind of Disneyfication that goes on in people's imagination that that is met with some deserved hostility, I think, by residents. And all of this applies in triplicate to second home. <laughs> but I suppose it's it, James. It's partly that thing of. People turning up in this beautiful Cornish village. Not everyone in that Cornish village, they're not like Disney employees paid to push bicycles around and smile and help you. And, you know, they live there and they get a bit annoyed with you turning up with your attitude. Yeah, I mean, I find the example of Cornwall, I sometimes find it almost a bit heartbreaking to think about. I mean, this could, I mean, you know, as a Londoner, what the hell do I know? But my sister lives in Cornwall. Um, and whenever I go and visit her, there are always, you know, there's often you see graffiti about, you know, second homeowners and stuff. And I'm, I'm really kind of, temp- I really sympathise because I kind of think, why should all the rich Londoners get all the most beautiful parts of the country? Mm. You know, we've you know we've discovered Cornwall. We've decided maybe a lot of us that we're not going to fly abroad um, for environmental reasons, and you know, most recently because of COVID. So now we're going to go and we're going to go and have Cornwall as well. And all the people who grew up there, and all the people whose part of the country it is, and it has you know, it's not just somewhere pretty and picturesque or Disneyland for them. It's got an emotional connection, all kinds mm. of things that you just don't get if you if you don't live there. And I sort of I find it really I find it really tragic the idea of people in um people in Cornwall being priced out of being priced out of their kind of the villages where their families have potentially been for um you know generations and generations I think mm. it's kind of the same in that you get the same phenomenon in the Lake District as well you know yeah. old Lakeland families who go back literally hundreds of years in the same village suddenly their kids can't live there I I really find that tragic actually I find that really sad. yeah it's heartbreaking yeah and I, I remember when I used to um cover uh Devon in Cornwall um but working in Westminster it was such a massive issue second homes and places where where 
you know, sometimes half the houses in a village were were empty for for most of the year. Um, well, what, in fact, one person who loves going to Cornwall, as we know, is David Cameron. He's up later on uh, giving his evidence to uh, the select committee about his text messages. James, have you ever sent a text message you've regretted? Do you know? What? I was racking my brains. Um, this is maybe on my on the subject of my boring column. Maybe this is evidence from a boring person. I don't think I have. I'm so paranoid. Whenever I like. Whenever I'm sort of talking about someone, I'll check my phone to see. Almost sometimes I switch it off so they can't overhear me. I'm just like, <laughs> I know it's a little bit. I'm a little bit crazy. So my excessive precautions have meant that I have failed to embarrass myself in that respect so far. Um, Unbelievable! That, you are, that is boring. Go on, then, India. When have you? What, what, when have you sent a text you've regretted? None recently. Very many in the past, and usually not none that I'm going to. <laughs> but, but usually, usually in a kind of dating-related context, usually late at night, sometimes having had some wine, and oh God, it makes my armpits prickle <laughs> to just remember them. Often aggressively demanding why why the earlier test text hadn't been responded to, and there would always be a completely reasonable reason, like the person was asleep, or that they were out of range, or they'd done their phone <laughs> off, you know, and oh yeah, just terrible, terrible, terrible. I'm I'm much more. I'm very kind of um, careful. India Knight and James Marriott there, and you could obviously read them both in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, we're heading to Scotland. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now we're off to Scotland. Scottish MSPs are being sworn into the new parliament right now following last week's elections. And this morning, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon was up first. I, Nicola Ferguson Sturgeon. I, Nicola Ferguson Sturgeon. Do solemnly, sincerely and truly declare and affirm. Do solemnly, sincerely and truly declare and affirm. That I will be faithful and bear true allegiance. 
that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, her heirs and successors, according to law. To Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, her heirs and successors, according to law. Yeah, I also thought, my immediate thought here at the start of that clip was, that's not Nicola Sturgeon, <laughs> but that's obviously the person telling her how to take the oath. Well, it's the sixth parliament uh, since devolved powers were given to Scotland back in 1999. And here's what happened back then. The era of big centralised government is over. This is a time of change, renewal and modernity. This is the way forward. Well done, Scotland, for taking it. This is indeed a moment anchored in our history. Today we can reach back through the long haul to win this parliament, through the struggles of those who brought democracy to Scotland, to that other parliament dissolved in controversy over 300 years ago. Today we can look forward to the time when this moment will be seen as a turning point the day when democracy was renewed in Scotland, when we re revitalised our place in this, our United Kingdom. I am pleased, therefore, now to declare the Scottish Parliament open and, in so doing, to present to you this newly commissioned mace. Let it serve to remind all of the lawful authority vested in the Scottish Parliament from today. So that uh, was what happened back in 1999, the state reopening of the Scottish Parliament, the first time it had sat since the formation of Great Britain back in 1707. So let's put the events of the day into some historical context. Let's speak to Dr Alan MacDonald, Senior Lecturer in History at the School of Humanities at the University of Dundee. Morning, Alan. Good morning. Well, apart from some nice music and, uh, you know, a sense of history uh, listening to that... How has uh, the last, what, what is it now, 22 years panned out since 1999 compared to what people thought might have happened uh, back in 1999? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think one of the key things that was uncertain back in 1999 is was the degree to which political alignments would change, the degree to which... Um, the long domination of the Labour Party in Scottish politics would be sustained or, or would be eroded. And um, for the first eight years or so, for the first two terms of the Scottish Parliament, it appeared that that um, continuity um, was predominant. Um, but obviously, since then, things have taken quite a different um, turn. And, you know, since um, 2007, ironically, and the 300th anniversary of the union, um, the SNP have been in power um, either as a majority or um, as a near majority um, managing to um, govern the country. Um, as far as we can tell, with um, the consent of a significant chunk of the people who, who get to vote. And just sort of dialing back a bit pre-1999, obviously there was the the Labour Party, you know, massively dominated politics in Scotland. Uh, the, much of the Tony Blair's first cabinet was it was uh, full of Scots, uh, and but the promise of devolution 
was a, a, an attempt to sort of kill off the idea of uh, independence, wasn't it? You know, this is supposed to be uh, a, a way of sort of ending that argument, not not furthering it and <laughs> setting us on the path uh, that that we're on now. It's one of those tricky things. I mean, I think um, opinion was divided. Some senior Labour politicians, one in particular, George Robertson, I think it was, um, who said this will kill nationalism stone dead. Now, clearly that didn't happen. There were others who thought um, that it would be a green light to nationalism to uh, flourish. And and I think perhaps they were more right. So um, it's, it's, it's one of those things that divided opinion at the time. And, and in a sense, it still divides opinion um, with regard to the the question of whether having a devolved parliament um, will is part of a slippery slope towards independence or, or is a way of, of, of uniting Britain uh, more firmly. And just in terms of the Scottish Parliament as it is today, for people who haven't been there, uh, what's it like? How does it function? You know, people are probably much more familiar with the Houses of Parliament in Westminster. But just describe Holyrood as a, as a seat of parliament for people who aren't familiar. It's quite an unusual building. It's very hard to get a sense of it from the outside. It, it, it's sort of um, higgledy-piggledy, I suppose, might be the best way of describing it. Um, but it's quite a striking building. And one of the most striking things about it, though, for anyone familiar with the chambers of the House of Commons and the House of Lords uh, at Westminster, is the shape of it, the feel of it. It's a much bigger, more open space. Every individual member has their own seat. And it's in a horseshoe shape, um, so it's a much more open um, space in which it's. The idea is, at least physically, it's less adversarial. Whether that's played out in the um, political um, theatre that happens within it is another matter entirely. My experience, having been there a couple of times, is that um, it's very easy to get lost. I mean, that is also true of the Houses of Parliament in uh, Westminster. Uh, the number of times I've gone down corridors, not quite sure where I'm going to emerge. But, um, yeah, I just found myself wandering around and not being having to basically ask for directions quite a lot of the time. I think pretty well any large buildings like that. <laughs> that is probably true. Uh, that is uh, that is probably true. And, but it's interesting, isn't it, the fact that that whole idea of they having their own essentially their own desk in the chamber is so different to Westminster where there just isn't enough room and people, you know, when they're allowed to sit on the floor and um, uh, alleyway uh, aisles and all, and all that sort of thing. It's, it, it being newer and built for the, the job that it's got. I think that's a really important point about the about the, the newness of the building and, and compared to the House of Commons. I mean, one of the things about the House of Commons is that it doesn't fit everybody, and it, and it never did. This is the weird thing about the House of Commons. I mean, even back in the in the medieval period, it was too small because it was basically a chapel, a pre-existing chapel that was repurposed. And what happened in the 19th century when the Houses of Parliament burned down was rather than sweep the, the, the ground completely clear, they actually rebuilt the House of Commons on the footprint of the old chapel. Um, so they had an opportunity in the 1840s to create a space that was big enough for Parliament in London. And they decided because of the sort of reverence for the, the, the old building and the old format that they just would replicate it. And then, in fact, we were talking about this week because this week was 80 years since the Commons was was bombed in the Blitz. And church, at that point as well, there's probably been an opportunity to do something different. And Churchill said, no, we must recreate it exactly as it was. Everyone packed in cheek by jowl to create that sort of uh, bear pit atmosphere, which is very different in uh, in uh, Hollywood. Uh, 
Um, Alan, really good to speak to you. Dr Alan MacDonald, their senior lecturer in history at the School of Humanities at the University of Dundee, to give us a bit of background about the building. Uh, but let's now turn our attention to uh, the people in it, uh, and what they're going to do, who they are and where they're from. I'm joined now by Alex Massey, of course, columnist uh, for The Times and The Sunday Times. Uh, morning, Alex. Good morning, Matt. And Gina Davidson, Deputy Political Editor of The Scotsman, who quite often joins us for Disunited Kingdom on a Wednesday. Hi, Gina. Hi, Matt. So, Gina, first of all, talk us through the political makeup and how it works in terms of people who might be more familiar with the sort of first-past-the-post idea, most seats, and you get to um, uh, uh, rule the roost in Westminster. How, is, how are the elections carried out uh, in Scotland, and uh, what's the breakdown this time around uh, as they take their seats today? Well, um, the Parliament is elected through the additional member system. So we have uh, constituencies which are elected uh, through first-past-the-post, so everybody understands how that works. But then we have eight parliamentary regions in Scotland, and they uh, elect an additional number of MSPs. And this is supposed to um, ensure some kind of proportional representation in terms of how many votes are cast for particular parties so that people don't feel that their votes are wasted. So last Thursday, everybody went to uh, the polling booths and they cast one vote on the constituency list and one vote on the regional list. And then obviously because of COVID, we had counts over Friday and Saturday. So the Friday was mostly constituencies and it all seemed quite um, as to be expected. And um, because the SNP were, were sweeping up uh, all the constituencies, uh, apart from two vital ones, but they came a bit later. And then Saturday we had the regional vote, so then you saw just how many opposition MSPs were going to be returned. So the Saturday count was was slightly more interesting. But actually, ultimately, at the end of the day, in terms of the makeup of the Parliament, very little has changed. The SNP won one extra MSP compared to last time in 2016, so there are now 64 SNP MSPs. The Greens did slightly better. They won an extra two MSPs, so they now have eight. And together, obviously, that creates um, a pro-independence majority in Holyrood. Uh, the Conservatives returned 31, which was the same as in 2016. Labour went down slightly to 22. And the Lib Dems actually um, really performed the worst. They have now only four uh, MSPs in Holyrood. And because of that, they're no longer classed as a, a major party in in the parliament and they lose various rights um including you know the right to ask a question at first minister questions and so on it happened to them back in uh, in westminster um uh, <laughs> in the 2015 general election um alex massey um in fact it was quite it was quite exciting on saturday afternoon uh, for, you know if hypothetically someone was at home with a hangover and just watching the results coming in uh, is the, the big question as to whether or not the smp were going to get an overall majority or rely or have to rely on the Greens for that sort of majority in favour of a second independence referendum. In in practical terms, what difference does it make that they are they, that the SNP didn't get the the full majority on their own? Well, in certain respects, it makes less difference than you might think. I mean, after all, there have been two previous SNP minority administrations that have had relatively little difficulty in passing their legislative agenda. Uh, and obviously, that one would expect that to continue to be the case uh, this time. If you have 64 uh, MSPs in a parliament of 129 and so on, you know, you, you're, you know, it doesn't really add very much to have 66. You know, you're, you're not going to have a massive difference there. But 
obviously in certain other respects the uh, failure to win a majority and although the system is designed to make winning a majority difficult what it is chiefly uh, it, it doesn't make it impossible it's chiefly designed to make it impossible to win a majority that is disproportionate i.e. that if you only won you know 40% of the vote you could somehow end up with 60% of the seats which obviously is is easily done at Westminster uh, so the failure to win a majority uh, compromises, I think, the SNP's moral authority in terms of demanding a second independence referendum in particular. Now, the nationalists obviously say that they have a mandate for this, and it's un- unarguable, I think, to, to, you know, to, to say that they don't have a, uh, a mandate. But at the same time, is a, you know, a majority in the Scottish Parliament for independence is clearly a necessary condition for there to be a second referendum at some point in the future. But it is not obvious that it is is a sufficient one, uh, because if it were, after all, there has been a nationalist majority in the previous parliament as well, uh, a pro-independence majority, and that didn't produce a referendum. So it is not clear to me that, that on that front, the SNP is actually able to deliver on its promise there. Um, and certainly there are no signs that, as yet that the British government or the 50% of people in Scotland who do not want a referendum are going to change their minds on that count. In fact, let's take a quick listen to what uh, Nicola Sturgeon said after the elections on her plans for a new independence referendum. If we end up in court, which is not something I want to see, that would only be because we had a UK government that refused to accept Scottish democracy. And I think that would be an absurd, outrageous and completely unacceptable position for them to be in. I support independence, the UK government oppose independence, that's legitimate, but the only people who have the right to decide that question are the people of Scotland, and the way to do that is in a referendum. Gina, what's your sense on when something might actually happen? Because it was interesting when we had a focus group on the show at the beginning of last week with uh, people who'd voted against uh, independence in 2014, but were voting for the SNP, maybe about one in five of their, their supporters, because they, you know, they liked Nicola Sturgeon, they thought she was the best person to run the country, you know, public services and all that sort of thing. And there's a risk, isn't there, that Nicola Sturgeon, particularly we're still in a pandemic, albeit things are looking slightly better, um, that if she looks like she's suddenly leaping to independence, uh, then that could uh, possibly harbour her support. Uh, but then we also discovered that if Boris Johnson says, no, you can't have a referendum, even the people who didn't want a referendum don't think that Boris Johnson should uh, stick it, should be the one who decides either. And so this is a weird game of sort of 4D chess that they're, they're trying to play. How does all this pan out, do you think? Well, I think it, it will pan out um, with the simple answer that there's not going to be a referendum anytime soon. Um, as you say, you know, the COVID pandemic is still ongoing. Um, Nicola Sturgeon was very clear throughout the election campaign that, you know, that was her number one priority when she uh, got back uh, to work in Butte House. And I think, you know, for the vast majority of the public, the idea of uh, of another independence referendum campaign kicking off now really wouldn't go down uh, very well at all. Um, so I think, you know, we're... 2023 is the is the year that um, Nicola Sturgeon has suggested, kind of halfway through this parliamentary term. And if they're working towards that, then they're going to have to get their, their ducks in a row pretty quick in terms of their independence arguments. So because say we were, we're in this COVID pandemic situation for at least another year in terms of coming out of it and putting things in, for recovery in place and so on and so forth. And of course, all depends on, on how well that goes, I think, um, in terms of the, the economic crisis that, that could hit Scotland. 
and then um, and then they, they need to develop an, an independent case because um, through that election campaign, Nicola Sturgeon was challenged on what would happen at the border, for instance, if Scotland went back into the EU. Um, you know what would um, what would trade be like? What, what would happen to our pensions? What would happen to our mortgages? All that you know, currency. All of these issues are still to be resolved. Um, so there's a lot of hard thinking yet to be done, I think, by those who um, support independence. And most of all, you know, the restrictions are in place, so they can't go out and they can't do the campaigning that they like to do. Um, you know, the Yes movement in 2014 was everywhere, basically, in terms of marching and, and leafleting and, and uh, street stalls and, and all that kind of thing. And they won't be able to do that at the moment. So, you know, 2023 is, is when they're looking at. But then, of course, you know, we might have another general election before then or around then or so on. Oh, so, stop it, you know, stop it. <laughs> now, Alex, one one um, thing that you, you you spend some of your time just sort of watching the goings on in the Scottish Parliament. How does the, 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 the sort of the building, the, 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 the Parliament itself... Uh, operate as a parliament. We've we've heard a lot about the the influx of uh, more women, um, more uh, MSPs from uh, ethnic minorities. Um, uh, how how does it compare to to sort of Westminster as a sort of how a parliament operates and looks and behaves? Well, I mean, when it was set up, there was uh, a lot of thought given to how uh, the procedures and culture of the Scottish Parliament might be differentiated from that pertaining at Westminster, and the view was, you know, improved, uh, given a more modern gloss, if you like, rather than the sort of antiquated, anachronistic procedures that uh, that uh, are said to prevail at Westminster. And there's a degree of truth to that. Um, it likes to think of itself as being a much more consensual uh, parliament. And it is true that, you know, budgets, for instance, tend to require the support of more than one party to be passed. Um, but there are certain weaknesses, too, that have become apparent over the last 20 years. You know, the backbenchers lack authority. Um, parliamentary committees in particular, we've seen in the last 12 months, often don't have... Uh, the tools they require to subject the executive to proper scrutiny. And unlike at Westminster, you know, the chairs of committees are, are not elected by, uh, chosen by their peers. And so there, there are, are certain weaknesses, I think, in the way in which the parliament is, is set up. Now, of course, it suits the executive party, the, the governing party, the SNP since uh, 2007, for that to remain the case. Um, and so I'm not sure that one should necessarily expect there to be any great improvement in addressing some of these, what you might term, structural weaknesses within the parliament. And Gina, what about you? What, what do you expect to see? Uh, we put independence to one side what will be the, you know dominating issues uh, in the coming weeks and months in the new new look scottish parliament well um i'm actually in the parliamentary building today for the first time um since last march i think so it's, it's quite surreal to be back in here and, and the msps are being sworn in today they're all kind of milling about as if they're looking for a, a wedding reception to go to in, in their finery and um today the, the the main issue is having a presiding officer elected um, the rumour has it that um, there is only going to be one candidate for that, which would be Alison Johnson, who is a, a Scottish Green MSP. And that would be quite interesting in terms of any uh, bills that are brought forward to deal with the referendum. So, you know, because obviously the, the Greens are, are a pro-independence party. So that will be rumbling along in the background. Um, but right right in front of the, the government right now um, is a, a new education 
uh, crisis uh, that's about to hit because um, senior year pupils are sitting assessments, which are not supposed to be exams, but appear to be exams. And <laughs> there's no <laughs> there's no appeals process in place yet. So nobody knows what might happen if they don't uh, agree with the, the results that they get. Um, now, last year we had this mess and the Education Secretary, John Swinney, ended up, you know, facing a vote of no confidence and had to back down on the algorithm that was used uh, to award grades, which was seen to be um, detrimental to, to students at um, schools in more deprived areas of Scotland. And so th there's another problem with this absolutely dead ahead. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon might reshuffle our cabinet, of course, before then, and we might have a new education secretary in to handle it. And they also have a, a, an OECD report on the education system due out any day as well, which might not be particularly flattering uh, to the government. So that will be a major issue, a major headache yeah. for, for the new government anyway. Well, there we are. Plenty for them to be getting on with Gina Davidson uh, there from the Scotsman. We also heard from Alex Matthew, the columnist for The Times. Up next, we're going to speak to uh, an MSP who's already been sworn in this morning. Across the UK, on DAB Digital Radio, on the free Times Radio app and via your smart speaker. Matt Chorley on Times Radio. Yeah, we're talking uh, Scotland because the Scottish Parliament is, uh, well, the MSPs are being sworn in this morning and then they'll choose their presiding officer later. Uh, let's speak now to Alex Cole Hamilton, who's the Liberal Democrat MSP for Edinburgh Western. Uh, we'll speak to him in just a moment. This was him being sworn in earlier. I, Alex Cole Hamilton, I, Alex Cole Hamilton, do solemnly, sincerely and truly declare and affirm, do solemnly, sincerely and truly declare and affirm, that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance, that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance, to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, her heirs and successors, to according to law. To Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, her heirs and successors, according to law. Well, you've got a round of applause then, and Alex joins us now. Uh, good morning. Good morning. So, uh, you, you, you've done, is, that you, is that it you've done for the day? I mean, you've done it before. <laughs> I've done, you've done it before, because obviously you've been in MSP since 2016. Um, I have. Describe what it's like when you're going through that moment. Is it, do, you feel the sort of, do, you, do you feel the hand of history on your shoulder? Well, it certainly makes you stand a little taller in your shoes. I think there are, there are a few moments in a parliamentarian's career which you will always remember. And I think being sworn in, again, is one of them. And, and for me, this is particularly special because opinion polls extrapolated across Scotland over the last year have consistently had me losing my seat. Whereas we delivered one of the highest number of votes for any MSP in history. So it was absolutely uh, a ringing endorsement for my constituency. I am humbled and looking forward to getting back to work for them every day. And as we were just hearing from uh, Gina and Alex, you've got fewer colleagues uh, on the Lib Dem, well, not benches, but uh, Lib Dem colleagues sitting alongside you. Well, we may be small in number, that is true, but our voices are mighty. And we have uh, become very good, both in Scotland and in Westminster, from a particularly small base, making our voices heard and punching above our weight. And, and actually, I think the, the depth of talent in our group is, uh, is recognised across the benches. Um, we are the only party that consistently speaks for liberal values, uh, for the mental health crisis, for the educational attainment gap. Um, and I think, you know, we're here to stay in that whilst people might have written us off before the election, some opinion 
polls. Had us going down even further than that. Um, the size of the majorities in our held seats um, shows that you know we've we've survived it the extinction threat that people were talking about and we are going to grow we can see paths to, to victory both in Westminster in the Scottish Parliament and in next year's council elections so we're still in good heart and yes it's disappointing to go backwards a bit but it won't make a huge amount of difference.